everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra, and I am joined today by the lovely Atreus, my dog. You say hi, buddy? You look right there and you say hi. Yes! Come here. Come here. Oh my goodness. There we go. Perfect. (laughs) Today, I am going to be talking to you guys about reincarnation, which is a topic I've always found really fascinating. So I will be sharing some of my favorite stories that could very well illustrate this phenomenon happening in our world. A couple of quick housekeeping things, as always, because we are at the top of the show. Uh, Before we get into the story, if you have been enjoying the podcast and you have not done so yet, please leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. And please subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow the podcast, just hit the follow button uh, if you're on a podcast platform. It really helps the show. Rating, uh, reviewing, subscribing, following, those are the best ways to support me and I so appreciate it. So please take two seconds and do that if you haven't already. And for ways to contact me, uh, my socials, and other ways to support the podcast, please check out the contact and support links in the episode description. All of the sources for today's episode will be in the show notes, so check those out if you want to learn more. Trigger warning for today's episode. Today's episode will contain content that may be considered disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. So talking about reincarnation, first we're going to just talk about the history of it. The word reincarnation comes from a Latin term that literally means entering the flesh again. And reincarnation is considered both a philosophical and a religious concept. If someone believes in reincarnation, they basically believe in the non-physical essence of a living being like the soul and the soul's ability to start a new life in a different physical form or body after the biological death of their current body. In most belief systems that involve reincarnation, the soul is seen as immortal. The only thing that becomes perishable is the body. So upon death, the soul enters a new infant or animal and it lives again. This process of the soul moving from its old body to a new body is known as transmigration. And reincarnation is most commonly believed today in Eastern cultures, though it was also taught in many ancient Western cultures. In Indian religion, reincarnation is known as Janma, and it's the central belief for Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. There are also Hindu and Buddhist groups that do not believe in reincarnation, but they do still believe in the concept of an afterlife. Some paganists also believe in reincarnation in some forms, and we see this concept in Judaism as well, and in indigenous groups in the Americas, 
and some indigenous Australians. So it's scattered all throughout the world, really. Even infamous historical figures from ancient Greece, such as Pythagoras, Socrates, and Plato, believed in this concept. The Celtic Druids are also believed to have taught reincarnation. So we know that most dominations within Christianity and Islam do not believe in reincarnation, but particular groups within these religions do refer to it, such as followers of Cathars, Alawites, Druze, and Rosicrucians. I'm not sure if I'm saying these right, but (laughs) I'm going to say them confidently. In Christianity, there are also some similar beliefs, such as the belief of an afterlife, heaven and hell, and of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In more recent decades, interest in reincarnation has moved west to Europe and America. Overall, though, from what I could find, historians seem to believe reincarnation originated in Indian culture. Now, of course, there is no scientific confirmation for the reality of reincarnation. However, in the words of the infamous Dalai Lama, if science can disprove reincarnation, Tibetan Buddhism would abandon reincarnation. But it's going to be mighty hard to disprove reincarnation. Many people of the medical community have actually studied reincarnation, but arguably the most famous works came from a man named Ian Stevenson. So he's pretty well known in this field, this little niche. So for over a period of 40 years, Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist from the University of Virginia, recorded case studies, mostly of young children, usually ages two through five, who would claim to remember memories and events from their past lives. He did these studies until his death in 2007, and Stevenson founded the Division of Personality Studies under the University of Virginia's Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences. The lab, which later would become known as the Division of Perceptual Studies, focuses primarily on examining children who remember former lives, as well as near-death experiences, apparitions and after-death communications, out-of-body experiences, and deathbed visions. He published these findings in 12 books. Stevenson studied a boy from Lebanon who not only knew where a deceased stranger tied his dog up each day, but also that the man had been quarantined in his room. And this was a fact that the family of the deceased attributed to his history of tuberculosis. Stevenson's findings included statements from the children, of course, and testimony from family, But he would also sometimes investigate cases where birthmarks or birth defects seemed to match wounds and scars from the deceased. And he would include medical records like autopsy photographs of the deceased. So I find that pretty fascinating. And we'll hear a story like that later involving um, a birthmark. Stevenson also claimed during his research he intentionally looked for disconfirming evidence and alternative explanations 
but typically he could find no normal explanation for these children's strange reports. So of course, when anyone believes things like this, there are going to be some critics. So there were many critics of Stevenson's work, such as philosopher Paul Edwards, who contended that Stevenson's works were nothing more than anecdotal and selective, essentially. And Edwards just believed that these stories were examples of false memories, bias, selective thinking, and that they would result from the beliefs of the family. The philosopher Keith Augustine also critiqued the works of Stevenson, saying most of his cases stemmed from countries with strong religious beliefs of reincarnation, seeming to indicate nothing more than cultural conditioning. Ian Wilson also pointed out a large number of these cases involved poor children, and when they remembered these past lives, they recalled lives of wealth and prosperity. So according to Wilson, in these societies, claims of reincarnation have actually been used as schemes to obtain money from the richer richer families of alleged former incarnations. So pretty interesting. Stevenson also claimed that there were a handful of cases he had done that suggested evidence of xenoglossy, which I find fascinating as a speech pathologist. Xenoglossy is a phenomenon in which a person is able to speak, write, or understand a foreign language that they could not have acquired by natural means. So Stevenson's cases that seemed to involve xenoglossy included two where a subject was under hypnosis and they allegedly conversed with people speaking a foreign language instead of merely being able to recite foreign words. But Sarah Thomason, a linguist and skeptical researcher at the University of Michigan, reanalyzed these cases, and she concluded that there wasn't enough linguistic evidence to provide supports for this claim of xenoglossy. There are also times during reincarnation research where the researchers will put the case study person under hypnosis in the hopes that this will retrieve past life memories. But this process has been critiqued by a lot of people. It's a process known as past life regression. A psychiatrist named Brian Wise claimed he had been able to do this with more than 4,000 patients since 1980. However, these memories documented by these patients often had historical inaccuracies, that seemed to originate from modern pop culture. Skeptics could say that this hypnosis and suggestive questioning could lead to false memories or distorted memories, kind of like false confessions and crimes. We know false confessions are weirdly common in the true crime world, so who's to say false memories aren't common as well? So because of this, Past life regression has been challenged and seen as unethical by a lot of people, including the American Psychiatry Association. So the American Psychiatry Association, or the APA, has challenged this technique. They called it unethical 
because of the implantation of false memories and how that could be harmful. You could also argue this technique violates the major principle of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Just some different things to think about, kind of seeing both sides. But now that we know a little bit more about the history of reincarnation and some people who have studied it and skepticized it, skepticized? We're going to go with it. Skepticized it. <laughs> Let's get into some stories. So going back to the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson, who we discussed earlier, and skeptics, we are going to talk about Dr. Jem Tucker. A lot of skeptics with Stevenson pointed out that the children he tended to study were from cultures that heavily believed in reincarnation. But what if a different doctor from that same university found children like this in America? So that's when we bring in Dr. Tucker. So Dr. Tucker began his work on reincarnation at the University of Virginia in the 90s, and he also wrote a book called Return to Life. And you can read that if you want to learn more about these stories. In an NPR interview with Rachel Martin, Dr. Tucker shared the story of a two-year-old boy named James Leininger, and James was the son of a Christian couple in Louisiana. He seemed like a typical kid. He really liked playing with toy planes, but around his second birthday, he started having really bad nightmares. These nightmares would recur about four to five times a week, and he would yell things like, airplane crash, plane on fire, little man can't get out. And he would tell his parents that these nightmares were of him being in a plane crash, which, okay, whatever, he could have seen a plane crash on TV or something. But then we got really specific, so let's keep going. After these nightmares started, during the day, he would say more and more interesting things. He knew very specific details about World War II aircrafts that would seem impossible for a two-year-old to know. For instance, when his mother referred to an object on the bottom of a toy plane as a bomb, James corrected her and said it was a drop tank. And another time, he and his parents were watching a History Channel documentary, and the narrator called a Japanese plane a zero, and James insisted that it was a Tony. And in both cases, he was correct. James also told his parents that he had been a pilot, and he had flown off of a boat. So his dad asked him what the name of the plane was, and James said it was called the Natoma. And it had been shot down by the Japanese. He said the Japanese hit the plane's engine, then it crashed into the water and quickly sank. He said he was killed at Iwo Jima, and he had friends around him, including a friend on the boat named Jack Larson. So it turns out there was actually an aircraft called the USS Natoma Bay, and it was stationed in the Pacific during World War II. This carrier was confirmed to have been involved in Iwo Jima, and the pilot that was lost there was named James Huston. So this guy was also named James. 
And James's plane crashed exactly the way that the boy described it. And when the crash happened, the pilot of the plane flying next to him was a man named Jack Larson. How wild is that? Tucker also goes on to say in the NPR interview that by the time this two-year-old boy was six or seven, the memories faded away. And then he also said that was pretty typical. So I thought that was interesting. But that is the story of James Leininger. So now let's get into the story of Ryan Hammonds. When Ryan Hammonds was just four or five years old, he started having violent nightmares as well. He told his mother one day he felt he used to be someone else. The mother would later describe this period of their lives as if she was living with an elderly person going through dementia and grieving. Ryan's mother later read one of Dr. Tucker's books and started to wonder if maybe Ryan was recalling a past life. Ryan's father was a police lieutenant and the son of a preacher, and he rejected this theory. He thought it was crazy, but he did think that it would be helpful for Ryan if they wrote down everything that he said, and his hope with this was that it would help them figure out just different ways to to help him and help soothe the memories. So they start writing everything down, And Ryan told his parents that in a previous life he had had, he lived in Hollywood, California with three adopted sons and had a sunglasses collection. He liked watching surfers on the beach. Bread was his favorite food and his favorite restaurant was in Chinatown, New York. So again, very specific memories. And this kid's only four or five. So, like, how would he know this stuff, you know? He also said he remembered dancing on Broadway, and he had a house with a big swimming pool. He traveled throughout the world on these big boats. And he also said he died at the age of 61. So given all this information, Ryan's mother ends up checking out some books on Hollywood, since that's where he said he was from in this past life. And her and Ryan looked at the books together, and they eventually came across a photo from the movie Night After Night, which came out in the 1930s. Ryan pointed to one of the actors and said, Mama, that's George. We did a picture together. The star of Night After Night was a man named George Raft. He then pointed to an extra off to the side in the photo and said, That's me. The extra at the time was unidentified. But at this point, the mother feels like it's a good time to contact Dr. Tucker. Extensive research was done to look into the identity of this extra in the photo. And they were eventually identified as Marty Martin. It seemed unlikely that an extra in a movie would have done all of these extravagant things. Lived in a huge house with a nice swimming pool, had all these big boats, danced on Broadway. But that is exactly what happened to Marty Martin. So Marty Martin was born in Philadelphia in 1903. 
Ryan talked a lot about a sister and also mentioned another one. And Marty had two sisters. And he also said he remembered his mother had curly brown hair, which is accurate to Marty's mother. Ryan was also right about dancing in New York. And Marty and one of his sisters had gone to New York to be dancers when they were younger. Marty danced in various reviews on Broadway, and his sister became a well-known dancer there as well. Marty eventually relocated to L.A. He got into the world of acting, starting off as an extra, and working his way up to becoming a dance director. He then became a Hollywood talent agent, and he set up the Marty Martin Agency, where he had notable clients such as Glenn Ford. Ryan had talked about people changing their names with the agency, which would certainly be true for a talent agency. People have their stage names. Again, something a four or five-year-old would not know. And Marty had several connections to Rita Hayworth, where his daughter confirmed he probably did know her. It's also possible that Marty Martis interacted with Marilyn Monroe because his wife's family knew her personally. Marty was also a big sunbather. He got sunburns all the time, which Ryan had mentioned. And he also said that he used to take his girlfriends to see the ocean. And there are pictures of Marty with girls on the beach. He also said that he remembered going there and watching the surfers, which Marty loved to do. Marty was married four times and he was really wealthy. He and his last wife had a very upscale lifestyle. Ryan said that he drove around Hollywood in a green car and that his wife drove a nice black car. Well, Marty's wife did not do the driving, but they had a custom-made Rolls-Royce that was presumably a nice car. And Ryan remembered an African-American maid, and Marty and his wife had a number of them. Unfortunately, very common during that time period, but doesn't make it any less shitty. And Ryan said he owned a piano, and Marty was known to have pianos around his house. So a lot of things are adding up here. The family lived in a very fine house with a large swimming pool, just as Ryan had described. Ryan also said his address had the word rock or mount in it, and Marty Martin's last house with a big swimming pool was located at 825 North Roxbury. So I do think it's important to point out Ryan made 47 correct statements about Marty Martin's life verified by Dr. Tucker. Dr. Tucker found that in total... Ryan made over 200 statements about his past life, but some were personal things that were impossible to verify. So it's not that there were a bunch of incorrect ones, it's just they were such personal things you couldn't really verify them with public records. Like, for example, I love popcorn, it's one of my favorite snacks. But had I not just said that out loud, it wouldn't be like publicized or documented, you know? Also of note, 15 of the statements were proven incorrect or implausible, including that his father died when he was a child. Martin's father only died six years before he did. Ryan also said he died in his past life because his heart exploded, but 
His official cause of death was a brain hemorrhage. Dr. Tucker also thought Ryan was not correct when he said he died at 61 because his death certificate said he died at 59. However, after looking deeper into census records, marriage licenses, and a passenger list, Dr. Tucker actually discovered Ryan was indeed correct about Marty's year of death and that the death certificate was actually wrong. He did die when he was 61. So I'll end with one final short story, and it's very short because I couldn't find a lot more information on it, but I find it so interesting. So this is in the Golan Heights region near the Syrian and Israeli border. And I don't know the name of this boy, but from the sources I found, there was a three-year-old boy that lived in this area who belonged to the Druze ethnic group. And the boy was born with a long red birthmark on his head. According to Drew's beliefs, birthmarks are actually related to past life deaths. So when the boy was old enough to talk, he told his family that in his past life, he had been killed by an axe blow to his head. And it's also customary for Drew's elders to take a child at the age of three to the home of this previous life if he remembers it. So apparently this is very common, very respected in this culture. And because he remembered this past life, they took him to this area. The boy had already stated the village he was from in this past life. He remembered it. And upon reaching the village, he also remembered his past life name. Village locals told the elders that the man who the boy was claiming to be a reincarnation of had actually gone missing before, four years ago. The boy also remembered the full name of his killer. So when he reached the village and he found the killer, he confronted him. The man turned white as a sheet and refused to say anything further. So the three-year-old then claimed he could take the elders to the very spot where his body had been buried. So he took these elders to a pile of stones, and the boy said, this is the spot. The elders dug, and not only did they discover a skeleton, but they found a severe wound to the skull, which was very similar to the shape and placement of the boy's birthmark on his head. They also found the axe that had killed the boy in his previous life. So then the murderer had no other option at this point but to confess. This entire story has been documented in the German therapist Trutz Hardo's book, Children Who Have Lived Before, Reincarnation Today. So as far as I know, that's the only other source that could potentially provide more information to the story, but... Now I really want to read this book. I find it so interesting and crazy. So those are just three examples of children who claim to have been reincarnated. And there's a lot of other stories like this. If you're curious about this topic, I would encourage you to keep digging and check out those books that I mentioned. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, 
please help me and support the podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, rate and review, follow the podcast. It would mean the world to me and is the best way to help the show. Don't forget, you can always request topics for future episodes, or if you have a perplexing story that you want to share with me, I would love to read it on the podcast. So you can send your stories and topic requests to my email, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram. There are a lot of ways to keep in contact with me and support the show, so be sure to check out those links in the episode description. I hope you guys enjoyed these stories. I know I enjoyed telling them. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye!